For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is an encore edition of Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, three of my favorite pop culture interviews from the past year. Comedian Fortune Feimster talks about being cast against type to star in Arnold Schwarzenegger's new Netflix action series. Richard Zoglin, the author of Elvis in Vegas, tells why he thinks The King reinvented the Las Vegas show. And hear from one of the top Las Vegas entertainers of today when I'm joined by one half of Penn and Teller. But which one will it be? Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. So I finally realized that I was gay and I had to tell my dad, which was like really nerve wracking because he doesn't like to have these deep conversations. So I was like, Dad, uh, I got to tell you, I'm gay. And he was just like, all right, okay. (sighs) <sighs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, do you uh, want to go buy you like a like a men's blazer, <laughs> or a or a top hat? <laughs> I was like, do you think lesbians wear top hats? He's like, I don't know. I'm just I'm trying to connect the dots. That's just a small taste of comedian and actor Fortune Feimster in action. Although she has had a cult following for a while, her profile raised considerably with the debut of Arnold Schwarzenegger's first television series, FUBAR, that's now streaming on Netflix. I spoke to Feimster last September as she was heading to Tucson, and at that time, the show didn't even have an official name. The first time I became aware of Fortune Feimster, it was because of her ice cream videos on YouTube. Short takes from all over the world of Fortune showing off a number of dance styles while enjoying frozen treats. So I started by asking how that series got started. It started very simply. Uh, I went to Disneyland with uh, some friends of mine a couple years back and I uh, got some ice cream. It was a really hot day and the parade started going by and all this music started playing and I was standing there eating ice cream and my friend recorded me. I didn't realize she was recording uh, me eating this ice cream and dancing and just not having a care in the world. And uh, she sent it to me and I was like, Oh, that's, that's funny. And I posted it. And so all these people were like, Oh my God, it's so fun to just dance and eat ice cream. And it just kind of became this thing where, if I would go to a city, they'd be like, you got to try this ice cream shop. And so I started going to like the local ice cream spots and I would do a little dance with the ice cream. And I just do it from time to time whenever uh, I want to brighten some days and eat some ice cream. Yeah. Where are you right now? Are you touring? Uh, right now I'm in Toronto. I've been filming this uh, new Netflix series with Arnold Schwarzenegger for the last five months. So it's been wild being out here and doing the show. Uh, but we're wrapping up soon, and then I will be finishing up the last of this tour. I will be uh, back on the road with the, these shows in Tucson and Orlando and then finishing up the rest of it in October. And then um, 
at some point later this year, I'll have a new Netflix special coming out, and then it's all all about writing that new act. Well, you know, you threw it out there pretty casually, but uh, what's it like working with Arnold? It's been really fun. I mean, he's been in this action world for many decades, so this is nothing new to him. Uh, but for me, I've never done an action series, so it's been really uh, wild and fun, long hours, but he's like such a pro, comes in, works all day, has the lion's share of work, and just watching him be so good at his job is really inspiring. And uh, he's just an interesting guy. He has lots of stories. He knows lots of people. So it's always fun when he uh, holds court and, and tells you about some of these adventures from his his full life. <laughs> Have you made him laugh? Oh, yeah. we. <laughs> he has a great sense of humor. He's, he really loves comedy, and, and he he likes to tell jokes and and. You know, he's very quick-witted with his responses, so we're always cracking each other up. It's it's pretty fun to make him smile and laugh because he's got that serious action star face on, and then you get him to start cracking up. It's a good feeling. Yeah, I bet. Well, can you tell us the name of the series or what your role is? We don't have a name yet. Um, they're figuring that out. I play a CIA uh, officer. Uh, who's a mathematician and the sharpshooter um, <laughs> in this world. I know, it seems crazy. But it's uh, basically Arnold and the woman who plays his daughter, uh, they are both in the CIA and don't know that, that each other's in the CIA. Kind of, it's sort of a nod to his True Lives movie. Yeah, I um, But in the form of a, a TV series. This is his first ever TV series, so it's really cool to be a part of it. You're very calm about these things. Do you get starstruck? Can you remember an instance where you ever found yourself in a situation where you were starstruck? For sure. You know, meet people that I'm really a big admirer of. I mean, Carol Burnett being one of those people. Uh, I met her in person a long time ago, uh, but we interviewed her for our radio show that I do for Netflix and SiriusXM. And she talked to us for about 30 minutes, and I think I cried at the end of it. I was so touched. (laughs) getting to talk to her i think i'm i think i'm most captivated by people like her people that are you know these legends who've been around and you know really made a mark in the business those are the people that i get starstruck by those those people who've influenced comedians like me i was an entertainment journalist for seven years so while i was pursuing comedy i was interviewing everybody known to man Uh, (laughs) so i got to meet a lot of people and you just sort of I guess after a while, you just are like, oh, yeah, this, you know, this is just part of my job. Uh, but I definitely get starstruck around people. I mean, Arnold included, you know, he's he's a, a legend himself and uh, very iconic in, in his roles. And, you know, you're sitting there repeating his sayings to him, like, I'll be back. <laughs> you're, you're like, when people start having their own sayings that are world known, uh, that's definitely... Um, another level of success. Yeah, people who come with their own catchphrases. Yeah. When you're doing shows in the South, because you do get a lot of mileage out of telling stories about growing up in North Carolina, I mm-hmm. do you have to play things a little differently when you're in the South as opposed to, say, when you're doing comedy in Canada and you're doing your Southern material? I don't really change up my act very much based on the city. Um, I... I think that my 
stand-up has really transitioned into storytelling. So most of the things that I'm telling are stories that have happened to me uh, in my life, you know, obviously with creative liberties and embellishing it, you know, to make the, the story part of it interesting and fun. And I find that at the root of those stories, um, even though it's my experience, there's a hopefully a relatability there, things that people can, you know, take from and be like, oh, I've been to something similar or my family's like that or my relationship's like that. I find that when you approach it from that angle, it doesn't matter, you know, if you're in the South or in Canada, uh, if you're telling stories that are sort of human-based and relatable, then, then people from all different walks of life can take something from that story and, and find a commonality in that. So the only time I change up anything is, say, if I were to go to, you know, overseas and they don't have certain restaurants or references, you kind of have to be like, well, what is the the similarity to that thing I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, what's the closest thing to an IHOP in France? Yeah, <laughs> like a Hooters restaurant or Chili's, you know, those kind of things are fun dip. Was one from my sweet and salty thing. I don't know if they have, I don't think they have fun dip over there. So I had to explain what it was. Even here in the 21st century, the legacy of Elvis Presley still looms larger than life. A new book examines the creation of that legend. It's called Elvis in Vegas How the King Reinvented the Vegas Show. It was written and researched by Richard Zoglin, a veteran journalist, Time Magazine television critic, and theater editor. Zoglin is visiting Tucson next week as a guest of the local Brandeis National Committee, and that gave me a chance to speak with him about the book. I've always been fascinated with Vegas. First went there on a family trip. I grew up in Kansas City. We drove out to California and stopped in Las Vegas along the way. I was 16 years old. We saw Johnny Carson on stage in Vegas, so that was my first memory, and it had a real glamour. Uh, the town and the, the hotels and the casinos, which I couldn't get into because I, I wasn't old enough. But, uh, you know, I really was fascinated with the place. And I went back a few times over the years. The whole concept of the Las Vegas show, which we all instinctively know w- what a Vegas show is like, but, but how did it start and how did it evolve over the years and what were the key sort of turning points? That's what I wanted to kind of explore. The Elvis aspect actually came as I was researching the book, and I, I knew about Elvis's big 1969 comeback show, but what I didn't know, and most people don't know, is that he first played there in 1956 when he was first coming up. The idea of Elvis doing a Vegas show in 1956 was, was kind of weird, and, and he actually didn't do very well, but uh, he kept a connection with the town, and it sort of uh, built toward his, his big comeback show in 1969. Your book often feels a little bit like you're going club hopping on the strip because you you stop in at the Sands and then you go to the International. Yeah. I really wanted to just really tell the history of Vegas uh, that led up to Elvis's 1969 show, which I think was the most important show in Vegas history. But before that, Vegas was a, a different kind of place. And the heyday years of the, the nightclub, years of Vegas were the 50s and 60s. Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack and uh, that whole sort of nightclub era that we think of as classic Vegas. So I I really wanted to get into that 
the lounge shows and the, the Folly Berger and the Lido de Paris, the big sort of girly shows that we, we knew Vegas for in those years. So yeah, there was a whole range of entertainment at that time. I didn't go to Vegas for the first time until the 1990s, uh, late 90s even. And yeah. already I noticed that the music in the buffets and, you know, everywhere was 80s. You know, like retro 80s, like Gary Newman, Smiths, yeah. you know, yeah. things like that. And that was um, that was a little disheartening to me because I expected to hear Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet and I expected to hear Louis Prima. And, and instead it was the stuff I grew up on. And I thought, oh, OK, so Vegas isn't stupid. Yeah, well, <laughs> Vegas went through a lot of changes, um, especially, you know, in the 60s when the the counterculture years, the uh, when rock music became the thing. And then Vegas, which had been kind of identified with Sinatra and the Rat Pack, and they were sort of the hippest guys in show business back in the early 60s. By the late 60s, they were not cool anymore. And Vegas was uh, kind of trying to figure out what it was going to be because it wasn't getting the younger generation. And by the 70s and 80s, I think it was kind of really wandering uh, figuring out where it was going to go. And I think by the 80s and 90s, Vegas was really a little bit lost. I mean, a lot of the big-name entertainers weren't coming there anymore, but they weren't really into the new generation of you know, rock singers and stuff. Not until um, really Celine Dion in mm. the early 2000s and the new kind of Vegas residencies did the place start to attract sort of, you know, more big-name entertainers again. Richard, in your book, you document a number of people who had personal connections to Elvis, and some of these aren't necessarily well-known. And I mean, I'm talking about Barbara Streisand or Mac Davis. I found those parts of the book really interesting, where he would connect with another artist, because Frank Sinatra wasn't necessarily that interested in uh, building friendships with younger artists, but Elvis always kind of seemed open to that. Yeah, well, Elvis, he loved uh, Vegas. He loved seeing the entertainment in Vegas, the lounge shows. Even before he he was playing Vegas, he would just go there, um, you know, on vacations just to, uh, you know, take a break from his filmmaking in the 60s. And he, he loved to go see, you know, the entertainment. And he was very generous to other performers. He really helped out other performers, older performers that he loved, like Fats Domino, the people who weren't big anymore, the people who influenced him. And then younger people like Mac Davis, who were just coming, who was a songwriter who, um, who got involved with, with Elvis. And he was, uh, he was a generous entertainer, and he was very well-liked. Despite all the problems that we know Elvis had in his later years, the drug problems and everything, people liked him. He was genuine. He was interested in other entertainers. And so I thought that was a really uh, wonderful quality and, and you know, nice to hear. The revelation that he was offered the Chris Christopherson role in Barbara Streisand's version of A Star is Born was really interesting to me, by the way. Yeah, that was surprising to me, too. That was by the mid-'70s when he was really starting to go downhill, frankly. He was getting bored with Vegas. He was looking for other things to do. He did apparently get this offer um, to star with 
Streisand in uh, in A Star Is Born. I mean, what an interesting choice. I'm not sure if Elvis at that point had the acting chops to do it, uh, and maybe that's why the colonel decided he basically made the deal so difficult that uh, they basically withdrew the offer. They went elsewhere. Um, I'm not sure if Elvis could have done that role, but it was certainly an interesting idea. I, I tell you, I choose to be optimistic and think that that could have been his King Lear, you know. Um, wow. The album cover was always seemed like it was always on top of my mom's album stack growing up. And so... Uh, the Star is Born yeah. uh, album cover? <laughs> yeah, so I can easily envision it with Elvis and stuff, yeah. Christopherson. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the Beatles, and, and obviously the rise of the British invasion had a big impact on the American music scene and helped to demote Elvis at that time. I, I found a, a note near the end of your book really interesting that uh, although the Cirque du Soleil Beatles tribute called Love, as far as I know, has been a big success, whereas the Elvis Cirque du Soleil show, Viva Elvis, closed within two years. And and it's like, yeah. you know, those Beatles, what a bunch of bullies, you know, they're still pushing Elvis Aaron around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think he admired the Beatles, but I think he was a little jealous of the popularity. They were the big thing in the mid-60s. The Beatles really looked up to Elvis, respected Elvis, and once when they were in the U.S. doing one of their U.S. tours, they, they actually wanted to meet Elvis. And they, in L.A., they went to Elvis's house, and there was a... They got together, and it was it was pleasant. But I think Elvis uh, still felt bad that he he had kind of been left behind by the rock world. So, you know, the Cirque du Soleil was interesting. I'm not sure why. I never saw the Elvis show, the Cirque du Soleil Elvis show. It may just happening something to do with the show itself. I thought the their Beatles show Love was was is really good. But uh, Vegas has plenty of other ways to celebrate Elvis. Uh, the Elvis impersonators are still all around. There's Elvis tribute shows, and so maybe they feel that they were doing their bit for Elvis, and they didn't need Cirque du Soleil to help out. My guest was journalist Richard Zoglin, the author of Elvis in Vegas, How the King Reinvented the Las Vegas Show. For as long as I can remember, I've loved seeing magic being performed. But even as I approached my teenage years, I was getting kind of sick of how stagey and, well, phony most of the magic on TV had become. Luckily, a completely unpredictable duo arrived on the scene called Penn and Teller. These bad boys of magic caused a stir and challenged their colleagues to start really surprising their audiences and put the illusion of danger back into their rabbit and hat routines. Penn is the tall, loud one, a master juggler and con man elite. Teller is the less tall, silent one, a daredevil and sleight-of-hand champion who never loses his cool. I'm very excited about all the new stuff that we are constantly working on, and that is something that invigorates me everlastingly. Yesterday afternoon, I met Penn in a cafe, and we went over several new ideas And it's kind of what I live for, you know? (laughs) I think I can draw an analogy. When you play in a band, um, that's a lot of fun. But the most exciting thing is the new song. Whatever the new song you're working on is, is the draw. You know, for me, there is a combination of the new stuff and the old stuff, which both have an attraction. 
Um, the the new stuff is you know is the latest adventure. The old stuff is the stuff that you have a chance to get better and better at with every show. Even if you've done the same particular piece for 30 years, it's very possible that this or that performance will suddenly inspire you to go, oh, you know, I never thought of that touch. Mm. And I, I guess there's part of the old vaudevillian in me. In the, you know, those those people would sometimes have a 20-minute act that they did their whole lives, and they achieved a degree of perfection that we just don't see anywhere. You know, you just you can't see that level of proficiency in um, magic or juggling or any of those things. There was a juggler named Bobby May, whom Penn and I met when he was very, very old. And Bobby May showed us film of his act. And at the end of his ball juggling routine, he was juggling like seven balls. And all of a sudden, he lost control of the balls, or so you thought. He lost control of the balls. They were bouncing all over the stage. And then he took his top hat off. And with almost no movement on the part of his body, he reached out and swept it through the air, caught six of the balls, did a forward roll, caught the last of the balls on, his, on the back of his neck, and popped that into the hat. <laughs> uh, that's, that's not something you achieve overnight. It takes a lifetime to do. And so, you know, when, when, we, when we come to any given place, we, we always try for a nice combination of things that are old and really polished and rich and things that are new and a little more daring. How long have you and Penn been performing in Vegas? And do, do you ever use the word residency? Um, and some people use the word residency. It's a fine word. We've, we've been at the Rio All Suites Hotel for about 20 years. We've been in Vegas for a little little over 30 years. We celebrated the 30th anniversary in Vegas about a week and a half ago. My goodness. It was, it's odd for us because, you know, wh- what do we come from? I come from Philadelphia. Penn comes from Massachusetts. And, you know, we got this sort of reputation as this, uh, you know, very hip New York off-Broadway act. And when we were first invited to play at a Vegas casino, basically what we said was, play for those Philistines? Good heavens, no. <laughs> <laughs> but as it turns out, the same people who go to Broadway also go to casinos. So we, uh, we, we became very happy to know that there's a sort of universal audience. Here's a question I've always wanted to ask a magician, and I don't think I ever have. Oh, good. On any given day, teller, how many prepared bits of business might you carry with you? Do you do that? Do you carry things in your pockets that you can use to produce a trick if you're required? Not invariably. When I was in high school, I thought that doing magic would enhance my social life. And when you think about it, when you're trying to enhance your social life in high school, what you want to do is to build trust with some other person. And perhaps the least successful way of building trust with another person is to deliberately deceive them. And, and so I, I, I sort of lost some, something of the joy of universally being prepared to do a magic trick. Now, the fact is, there's one trick that I am always prepared to do if I can borrow a coin from somebody. So I was in, where was I? I was in Sydney, Australia, in one of those very high locations where you can look out over the city and a mature woman came up to me and said, oh, I love your work. I love your work. Could you do a trick for me? And I went, okay. And I borrowed a, some kind of coin from her. And I did that coin trick for her and gave the, gave the coin back to her covered with spit as it is at the end of the trick. <laughs> so I, yeah, I'm, I'm always prepared to do that one coin trick. There are, I'm going to some sort of special occasion 
where I think someone might want to see a piece of very beautiful magic, I might go subtly prepared not to look like I'm prepared. I mean, I'm not carrying a silver ball on a stand with a, with a buzz saw. Uh, the props that I'm using look like part of my, my wardrobe. Then I will just wait because if nobody asks for something, believe me, I'm not going to do it. But if somebody sort of asks rather insistently, I'll go, well, you know, I could do this. And I walk into any given place and see if some of the other props I might need present themselves. There's something that I do with a flower close up like that. I I remember walking into Barbara Streisand's dressing room and thinking that she'd enjoy a trick, but you know what? There isn't a suitable flower here. Oh, well, and didn't do the trick. The point you made about when you want to amaze people with your tricks, but they know you're probably coming up to them to play a trick. It's just like if you tell people jokes a lot, then anything you say begins to sound like the setup for a joke, even when it might be tragically true. <laughs> so so that really, <laughs> the logic of what you said made a huge amount of sense to me and makes me understand why it's probably not, like you said, the way to you know, win friends and influence people. So I like that. Some people do it. I mean, truly, I, I know some, some magicians who uh, use it as a social lubricant, but they've got the, the exact right style. It then then makes it makes it work just fine. I just never I was never able to find that as a as a high schooler, and so the idea of close up magic didn't interest me. And the idea of doing magic in the real world seems like a fundamentally different idea from the idea of doing magic in the theater. In the, in the theater, you have the proscenium to say everything we're doing here is a trick. So if you do something that looks like mind reading, you have a little danger of the person misconstruing it as some sort of actual supernatural event. I like the protection that having a proscenium gives you from from people misconstruing what you're doing. Because of your highly distinctive stage presence and the character that you have created for yourself and the character that Penn has also created for his self, do you think that you sometimes in daily life maybe benefit from a certain kind of sympathy or compassion that people might feel for you that's different than, say, the way they might feel about Penn. I kind of generally know what you mean, but if you know Penn, if you meet Penn in person, what you find that is that the brashness that he is capable of exuding on stage uh, is really no part of his real personality. <laughs> that his, his real personality is sort of um, a guy who always aspired to be a French existential writer who was raised by two extremely kind and sweet New England parents who took work very seriously and who loves good jokes. I mean, so he's, he's, a, he's a very jolly companion in real life. I, but I know what you mean, I mean we, because we've done some things in which um, I've been the, uh, not exactly the victim, but, but in which I've played the, the underdog. Mm-hmm. A Laurel Although, and Hardy aesthetic. The underdog that very often triumphs. That was the rarely heard voice of one of the most recognizable entertainers in the world, the magician known only as Teller. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.